I hope you have your Bibles with you. I'm going to encourage you to be familiar with four places in the Bible. Matthew 5, Matthew 19, Genesis 3, and 1 Corinthians 7. That's really the scope of where we're going to be in this message. But while we get ready to look at God's Word, which you're in a church that is Bible-believing, Bible-preaching, Christ-exalting. So every time you come here, this is what we're looking at. You're not going to get uh, Pastor Tim, Pastor Matthew, Pastor Austin, or Pastor Tim Van Summeren's opinions unless we carefully tell you, now this is our opinion, you're going to get the Word of God and our understanding of it. So we want you to have your Bibles open. We want you to be looking at it with us as we pour through it. 19th century socialist Robert Owen, listen to this. He asserted, claimed, that marriage and family and private property have cursed the world ever since the creation of man. He argued that children ought to be transferred from parental to institutional care. Now, inwardly, you probably want to be gasping. But surprisingly and shockingly, he is by no means unusual or alone in his views. A little bit later than his life, Lenin, the Russian dictator, once said, destroy the family and you destroy society. Now, I want, to, I want you to hear that again. If you destroy the family, you destroy the society. This was Lenin's view. Lenin, who used to bring all of his leadership around and take a chicken, and a live chicken, and pluck the feathers and set it down to the ground, and the chicken would hysterically be running to and fro in the room. And then he would pull out of his pocket a few kernels of, grain, of, of corn, and the chicken would come right back over to him. And then he would say, men, that's how you lead a nation. It doesn't matter how brutal you are as long as you meet its needs. That's Lenin. If you destroy the family, you destroy the, the society. That was his aim. Linda Gordon, modern Linda Gordon, writes this, the nuclear family must be destroyed, and people must find way, better ways of living together. The breakup of families now is an objectively revolutionary process. So you may not know this. In fact, I'm kind of betting that a lot of you don't. There is actually a strategy and a plan in place, and it is widespread in liberalism to destroy the family. I'm not making this up. I actually took about three or four more quotes out of this in order to compress it so that we can fit it in the right timeline, or the time that I've got allotted. There is a war on family, and it's been happening before... Robert Owen ever even lived. And I'm going to take you back to Genesis chapter 3. In fact, if you go to Genesis 2, and I would invite you to open up your Bibles, there is the first marriage, replete with wedding day, wedding poem, or wedding song, recorded in Genesis chapter 2. And then you flip the page, if your Bible requires you to do that, to chapter 3. And then if you get to chapter 3 and you start in verse 1, you get this drama playing out in the Garden of Eden. Adam and the woman are married. They are there together. And Satan is tempting the woman to defy God, doubting his goodness. 
Now, I want you to get what I just said. He's tempting the woman. Not once in this dialogue does Satan ever speak to the man. He never spoke to Adam. He only speaks to Eve. He's tempting her. And she ate the fruit of the tree that God prohibited, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and clearly, explicitly said, do not eat of it. She later added into God's word, do not touch it, and that day you will die. God did not say, do not touch it. He said, do not eat it. She ate from the fruit of the tree that God prohibited, and then gave some to Adam, the text says, who was with her. Meaning, men, you got to listen, he did nothing to intervene. He did nothing to protect his wife. He did nothing to lead his wife into obedience. He was a silent, complicit partner to evil. Now, you may not realize this, perhaps you do, but you may not realize that Satan, in doing this, accomplished a double objective. Now, I want you to hear this. This right now is the first critically important thing that I'm going to tell you. He had a double objective. You might think, well, Satan just wanted them to sin. He certainly did. That certainly was his objective. But he wanted them to sin in a particular way. He wanted them to sin in a way that would reverse God's design on marriage, where she would lead him into sin, and he would forfeit headship, and it worked. And the result would lead to a very particular consequence of their sin. God calls them to court. This is a very legal process of what unfolds in Genesis chapter 3. He meets them in the garden, Adam and his, the woman that was with him. She will later be named Eve. Right now her name is woman taken out of man. That's what it means. And he will meet them and he will force them into a confession and then he will call all three offending parties to court in order satan then eve and then adam and when you get to verse 16 and i would ask you to look at that look at verse 16 with me you're going to see a very very particular consequence of their sin to the woman god said i will surely multiply your pain in childbearing in pain you shall bring forth children your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, that actually sounds, oh, at least the first part of it, the second clause, kind of romantic. Your desire will be for your husband. Well, let me tell you, though, what that really means, and you can learn it by going to chapter 4. And I would invite you to go to chapter 4, particularly verse 7. And you're going to find in the original Hebrew language the exact same wording except for pronoun changes where God says to Cain, Cain, sin is crouching at the door. Here it is. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Now, back in verse 16, it's the exact same word for word other than pronoun changes to Eve. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, look at me for just a moment, if you would. Sin hardly has our best interests in mind. It does not want to benefit us. It wants to control us. It wants to not bless, not to enhance our lives, but to ruin us. The objective of sin is to destroy us. 
And now when you read into this, that objective from chapter 4, verse 7, back into chapter 3, verse 16, now what you understand is that God is saying to Eve from verse 16, your desire will be against your husband. That's really the right word. But he will harshly rule over you. Now, ladies and men, husbands and wives in particular, we have now seen the very beginning of the battle of the sexes. And it was the devious plan of Satan all along. He wants wives, now listen carefully, if you would, to the degree that sin reigns in them, to desire to usurp her husband's headship. And he wants husbands to the degree that sin reigns in them to harshly dominate their wives. And we've seen this for all of the countless years of history since that moment to today. See, Satan began a war on marriage and human history is littered with its destruction. Now that sounds pretty bad. It is bad. You want to know where divorce comes from? It comes from verse 16 in chapter 3. Divorce is always sinful. Because it's sin that has caused it. But not all divorces are equally sinful. We're going to look at that. But there is good news along the way. And I want you to hear this. This is the second most critically important thing I'm going to tell you. The power of the gospel can restore any marriage. Now, I don't know if you believe that. I'm going to share with you a story and an example from my own life, my own family, where you will clearly see this power at work. But I hope you can at least put it in your mind and maybe consider it later. Do you truly believe the power of the gospel can restore any marriage? You know, I believe that. I absolutely, fundamentally, with every fiber of my being, believe this. I believe this is the power of God's word, the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. And the evidence of this power, now this is actually exciting, was seen in the countercultural marriages of the early church. Husbands were transformed to treat their wives as partners, not property, with love, not control. Wives were transformed by the power of the gospel to affirm and to thrive in their husband's leadership, to be joyful in the midst of it. In fact, I'm going to read to you a quote, and you'll see it on the screen. Christians were married in Roman civil ceremonies, but believed that they were receiving in sacrament, a sacrament that bound them to each other in fidelity, faithfulness for all of their lives. And the words of Tertullian... It's a very famous church leader of the early church. Christian married couples are people, quote, who sustain one another in the way of the Lord, who pray together, who go together to God's table, and who face all their ordeals together. The writer goes on, Christian couples did not divorce 
or have sex before marriage because they believed that sexual intercourse was for marriage only and that the unity of man and woman in marriage was sacred and indissoluble. It was a reflection of Christ's own unity with his bride, the church. Now, I have just told you the greatest part of this entire message. It was a reflection of Christ's own unity with his bride, the church. Now, Christian, can you look at me for just a moment? Not everybody here, probably not everybody here, is a believer in Christ. Not every marriage here is equally yoked, two believers together, likely at least. But I want you to read what I'm going to put on the screen. I want you to hear what I'm going to tell you from the Word of God. We must be Christians. We must shine, rather, as lights in the world in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. How do we shine? Listen, I'm going to tell you, if you have a strong, loving marriage, you will be shining in this world because it's against the backdrop and the tapestry of broken marriages. And God has designed marriage to represent the relationship that Jesus has with the church. We are called his bride. And I was thinking when I drank the juice at the Lord's Supper, one day I am going to drink the juice at the wedding feast of the Lamb. And I wondered in my mind just how great that wine will taste. Paul writes, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, and then he expounds on it. The mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The best thing your marriage can do is show the world just how much love Jesus and his church has for one another. In Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives in two verses a summary on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. But then he unpacks it more fully in Matthew chapter 19. And Jesus is doing something. He has an objective. He has a goal. And I'm going to tell you what he's doing. He is rescuing marriage from the sin-wrecked place it had fallen and he's affirming it's God-given joy and its design and its permanency. And you get to Matthew chapter 19, and I want you to look with me, if you would, please, at verse 3. Let's look at the Word of God together. And the Pharisees came up to him, and they tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's life for any cause? Now, you remember from last week, and if you didn't hear last week's message can I encourage you, go back and listen to it. It forms the starting line, the starting gate for this one, the backdrop for this one. But if you can recall from last week, there was a controversy in the day of Jesus. It was among two rabbinical schools of, of thought, Hillel and Shemil. And one group taught that a man could divorce his wife for basically any reason. That was the Hillel school, Rabbi Hillel. And the other group, Shamil, taught that there was only one reason, and it was the physical act of adultery. 
So Jesus is being tested in Matthew 19. He's responding to the test. They're trying to bait him. They're trying to see which group he would align with, Hillel's or Shamil's, because somebody's going to be angry and it will draw him into the controversy. That's the goal of the Pharisees. But Jesus answered by quoting what we just looked at, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And it seems that Jesus is aligning with the more strict school of Shemiel. But, now listen, this is important that you understand this, but by, by appealing to the original ordinance of marriage in Genesis, he elevates marriage way beyond Shemiel to a place and a state that God intended is permanent, much greater than the allowance given for divorce in Deuteronomy 24. Look what he says in verse 6. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Joined is a word that refers to a strong bonding together of objects. It was often used to represent gluing or cementing two objects together. And, and it's so strong that if you tear it apart, part of the objects rip. So the one who joins a man and a woman in marriage. Now listen, it's not the bride, it's not the groom, it's not the parents, it's not the pastor. It is only God. God is the one who unites whether you're married by a pastor or a judge, whether you're married in a church or at a resort, God unites. Therefore, Jesus says, let no man... Now, I want you to see for a second, it doesn't say the man. A definite article means he's talking to men, male. Here, let no man, no woman separate. A word that doesn't mean a temporary separation, because I've got to go on a business trip. But in the context of marriage, the word means divorce. So he's saying, let no man, let no man or woman divorce. God joined it together. You have no permission yet, we're going to get to this, to divorce. Well, the Pharisees persist. Verse 7. I think likely because conviction is settling in. And they try to do a runaround and end around, and they say, Why then did, did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? We saw last week, they didn't, you know, Moses never did command. He allowed. God was regulating divorce. It was never his idea. But Jesus gives the reason to their question, verse 8. And it's as relevant today as it was then. He, write, he said, Because of your hardness of heart. Now, a hardened heart in this context suggests a person who is guilty of ongoing marital unfaithfulness and is unrepentant. That's what it means, a hardened heart in the context of marriage. So God did not create divorce. It was never God's plan. It was never God's desire, but he has allowed it. And I'm going to speak now a little bit now my opinion. I told you I would let you know when it's my opinion. I do believe I'm on safe foot biblical grounds here. But I will tell you that I think, I believe, 
that where there is a biblically allowed divorce because of hardness of heart, it is a mercy from God to the one who is married to an unrepentant, unloving person. I believe that's true. Jesus goes on, he says to the Pharisees, verse 9, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now this is shocking. This is shocking today. Just as it would have been then. Whoever divorces his wife except one allowance, except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The message Jesus conveys to the divorce for any reason Pharisees, according to John MacArthur, is this. Illegitimate divorce followed by remarriage makes adulterers of everyone involved. Now, I'm going to take a brief time out to say this. I am very aware that we have even here right now, and those who will be listening Sunday morning, and those whom I will be preaching this to at Mark Street, and those on the web. We have people who have divorced. We have people right now who are executing plans for divorce. Shockingly, this morning, I just learned that a couple who previously attended our church left, and I have no idea why they left. They can never explain it very well, but they did. I just learned that they're moving to divorce. So I'm aware that we've got people in the midst of this. People have gone through this. And this is an incredibly painful experience. But I'm going to preach the word. I told you I would do it sensitively, and I'm going to. And I'm going to answer questions extremely clearly, at least as far as I know how to. But I want to say that we've seen that God created marriages to last until death parts a wedded couple. Now you go into marriage with that mindset. I've never married anybody of all the dozens of couples that I've officiated their weddings for who were who was walking down the aisle or receiving their bride down the aisle who thought, you know, I give us eight years. I've never met anyone yet that's thought that way. But there's got to be driven as an anchor. Divorce is allowable in one situation. That's all the Lord gives. Until you get to 1 Corinthians, and I'm going to unpack it. Now we saw that Satan had, has hated marriage from the beginning. And his strategy is to ruin it. We've seen that sin creates a warping effect in men and women, distorting the roles of a husband and a wife. Yet the gospel's work is one of transformation. Gospel can restore marriages to shine like lights in this dark, sin-pervasive world. But the sermon that you're hearing is likely generating questions. So let's answer some questions, and I'm going to do it as clearly as I can. Question number one. What are the biblical allowances for a divorce? Let's just simply answer that. Jesus here, along with Matthew 5, proclaims that divorce is allowed for one reason, sexual immorality. 
Now, every time I've gotten a couple, and usually by this point it's one of the spouses, coming in and I've explained this to them, to that person, whether it's a man or a woman, they immediately want me to define for them, okay, well, what is sexual immorality? And in some cases, I hope that I could define it, that Pastor Tim could define it in a way that will condemn my spouse because I really want to get a divorce. So let me define it for us. The Greek word, it's one word for sexual immorality. There it is on the screen. It ought to be unfortunately familiar. And it's a word that covers illicit sexual activities in the Bible, such as incest, homosexuality, bestiality. But in the context of marriage, it always refers to adultery. Mark and Luke's Gospels omit this clause except for sexual immorality when Jesus speaks about this, likely due to the fact that no one really disputed adultery as a grounds for divorce in his day. It was a universally accepted belief by the Jews. But adultery in the Old Testament was met with the death of the one who had committed it. And if it was committed by two people, they both were stoned to death. It was a capital punishment, capital crime. The only thing that can break the glue of marriage is death. And though an adulterer was no longer killed by the time of Jesus, Roman law forbade it, his or her actions were treated as if that person was executed and divorce was permitted. So you, you understand now, divorce is resolvable, or marriage rather can end in a divorce, or it can end only in death. Adultery in the Old Testament was death to the adulterer, and the person was free to remarry. But it was never commanded it was never commanded, you've committed adultery, therefore your spouse must, New Testament I'm talking, your spouse must divorce you. And how glorifying it is when Christian couples endure and find their way to a healthy, strong marriage despite it. Now some of you likely in hearing me say that are saying inside, forget it. If my husband... Or if my wife ever cheated on me, they're done. It was in high school that the phone rang in my home in central New York. My mom answered it. And I will never forget the gasp that came out of her mouth. I ran into the kitchen. I thought something had happened. And there is my mom with her hands over her face, leaning on the counter to keep her from falling, with the phone pressed to her ear. And what I learned very shortly was that my oldest sister had just come home with her two toddler girls and discovered a note from her husband that he had just run away with her best friend whom he had gotten pregnant. After a lot of tearful days with their pastor, my sister, and her husband, who after a day came back in tears, asking for her forgiveness. They went to their pastor, and after many tearful days, they decided to try and keep their marriage. 
They were Christian school teachers in New York. Both of them resigned immediately. They moved from New York to Pennsylvania. The upheaval was so great, they couldn't even stay around the area. They entered a camp down near Reading that a church owns, and the pastor of the church agreed to meet with them and counsel them, which he did for about six to eight months. Over 30 years later today, they've had two more since that event happened, four kids all serving Jesus Christ. Their marriage is better than it ever was. Divorce to them was unthinkable, and God honored them. Now, my sister had every right biblically. She had the allowance to divorce her husband. And God would have said, I've given you the out. And she said, I'm not taking it. I believe the gospel can repair and it did. The out is there. The allowance is there for sexual immorality, adultery within marriage. But it is not to be, Christian brother and sister, an automatic divorce. However, if the unfaithful spouse refuses to repent and remains in that sin, which we have had happen in this church, then divorce is a merciful allowance from God. See, the world sees Christ in a marriage that can endure by his grace even the horrible pain of adultery. But it leads us to another question. If a spouse is guilty of looking at pornography, does that allow for divorce. You know, Jesus does not teach that every spouse whose partner lusts has a right to divorce. Virtually every one of us would be on grounds of divorce if that were so. Every effort must be made to help the spouse in pornography find freedom from sexual sin. Every effort. However, there is a difference between a spouse who fights against lust and periodically stumbles and one who relentlessly pursues sexual sin. The destructive effects of that hardened heart could destroy every aspect of intimacy in a marriage. The suffering spouse, the innocent one, must seek wisdom. Have I done, this is what the innocent spouse must ask, have I done everything I possibly can to help my spouse overcome this? Meaning this, have I given time for God to work? Have I prayed earnestly? Have I been faithful myself? Have I kept my heart from unforgiven bitterness? Have I conducted myself in purity and holiness with my spouse? Have I sought counseling? Have I come to my elders for help? Have I done everything I can to help my spouse overcome lust? And if so, and the guilty spouse persists in unrepentance with a relentless, uncaring pursuit of lust then I believe there are rare cases so severe that they qualify as grounds for divorce. But what about spousal abuse? 
isn't that grounds for divorce? You know, there's a, a wide variety of marital abuse, physical, sexual, emotional, verbal. Listen to this from Proverbs 11:9. With his mouth, the godless man would destroy his neighbor. If you are married to an abusive verbal spouse, you understand as your soul shrinks within you. The power of words can be lethal. One of the clearest biblical examples that I know of of a marriage to a very difficult, likely abusive husband is Abigail, married to a man called Nabal, who the Bible says was harsh and badly behaved. His own servants said of him, he is such a worthless man that no one can even speak to him. He had spurned, Nabal did, David's legitimate request for assistance. And David, with all of his men, was on his way to kill him. To kill his household. Now this was Abigail's out of a terrible marriage. Now listen, all she had to do was step aside. Well, your, your response might be, well, she cared for her servants and her household. And I would agree, she did. All she had to do then was plead to David, which she did. She threw herself down before him and plead that he would spare her servants and her family and her household. But you can have at my foolish husband. That's all she had to do. And David, we're pretty sure, would have obliged. But instead, she intervened on behalf of her husband. She saved his life. And when he was done with his hangover the next morning, the Bible talks about, and heard what she had done for him in saving his life, he had a heart attack and died 10 days later. Now, ladies, don't get any ideas here. That's not why I'm sharing this. Because I'm feeling a bit of chest pain myself. You know, it's not even really laughable. Ladies, I'm going to speak to you for a moment. I don't know if you truly understand just how much God has worked to protect you. It is clear all through the Old Testament. Law after law was enacted by God to protect women. You may read the, the Bible and particularly the Old Testament in a misogynistic lens, male-dominated, chauvinistic, but you don't see God the way the Bible sees God. And ladies, if you are being abused by your husbands, if you are suffering, first of all, criminal or physical abuse, there are three things I'm going to tell you to do urgently today. First of all, pour out your heart to the Lord. He will defend you. Secondly, call the police. Romans 13 says that the police are God's servant for your good. And thirdly, call an elder of your church or a pastor of your church to come and intervene and protect you. Church elders are to care for God's flock. If we do not do that, we are not worthy of our position. But come for legitimate purposes because we're going to investigate carefully. Proverbs says the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. That's why I almost never do marital counseling with just one spouse. Because always 
the one whom I'm counseling looks like the innocent party. Listen, I want you to hear this, and ladies in particular, and by the way, I'm going to tell you in today's age more than ever, it's not just ladies who are being abused in marriages. I've worked with husbands whose wives have held a knife to his throat, even drawing blood. I've worked with a husband whose wife smashed a plate on the kitchen island and came after him to kill him. I've actually counseled a husband who was completely punched and beaten up by his wife. He called the police and they gave her a restraining order. But the majority of abuse is, by and large, men. It's perpetrated by men. And ladies, I want you to hear it is not God's desire that anybody be abused by a spouse. It's not his desire. And in the Old Testament, it was common for a, a poor man to sell his daughter as a servant to a wealthy family. When we would gasp, wow, what father could do that? Well, a poor father, that's often the only way that he will ever help his daughter climb out of cyclical generational poverty. And God commanded that if the wealthy man who purchases her with a dowry marries her, he was not to diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. Don't just think intimacy with marital rights. It had everything to do with intimacy and dignity and respect and honor. In other words, he could, treat, he could not treat her as property. He could never mistreat her. He could never send her out to fend for herself in that male-dominated world. He must care. He must provide for her every need. And if he failed to do this, Exodus 21, verse 10, if he failed to do this, she was legally freed from the marriage and could return back to her father's home. I'm telling you, God cares about women. He has protected them all through the Bible. If someone is being physically or sexually abused by their spouse, you must come out from under the abuse. I have to say that because I've counseled professionally before I counseled pastorally. I've counseled now for 29 years. I've worked with dozens and dozens, I, I actually think probably hundreds of married couples. And I've seen over and over a woman who is being abused, a wife being abused by her husband. I'm telling her, Romans 13 gives you God's servant, call the police, come to us. Let us come around you as the church. And still she will not come. She stays in the abuse. There's almost nothing you can do. Come out from under the abuse. Get to your family. Get to your church. Let us come around you. Let us protect you. Give time for genuine repentance to your husband or to your wife. Follow biblical steps of reconciliation. Marriage is so serious that it warrants, I believe, time for there to be repentance. But God doesn't want you to stay in the family, stay in the home and suffer the black eyes and suffer the demeaning sexual treatment. That is not God's delight for you. That is not what God is asking you to do. Come out and be protected. 
And follow Matthew 18. If you go to him, he will not listen. Get a witness. If he will not listen, come to the church. If he will not listen, listen. Here's what Matthew 18 says. He is to be treated as a Gentile and a tax collector. Or in other words, the unrepentant, relentless abuser can definitely be considered an unbeliever. And one who has abandoned marital responsibilities. And I would, at that time, following biblical steps of reconciliation, yet he remains unrepentant, I believe, and I would counsel you, you've got permission to divorce. But it gets us to the question that probably everybody wants to know, can a divorced person remarry? Now this is likely going to be the hardest part for many of us. The Bible is clear. That widows are allowed to remarry. Death ends, Romans 7, the contract covenant called marriage. You are free to remarry, listen, in the Lord, meaning to a believer. Adultery allows for divorce and remarriage. And again, for a Christian, only to a believer. But there is a scripture passage in 1 Corinthians 7, I would invite you to turn to there, that contains an allowance for remarriage after divorce, as well as a prohibition to remarry, both of them found in this passage. And I'm going to read two of the verses, and it says this in verse 10. To the married, I give this charge. Now look at me for just a second, if you would. I want to make sure you get this. He's speaking to the church of Corinth, assuming these are believers. He's speaking to Christians married together. And he says, not I, but the Lord. He's drawing on the Lord's teaching on marriage. And he says, Paul the Apostle does, the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. That's kind of a long run-on way to say it's true for men as well as for women. And he's speaking of marriage between believers. And should unbiblical divorce occur, then the guilty spouse should remain unmarried. Or, if possible, if the one that he divorced or she divorced never remarries, and she's willing or he's willing, then reconcile and get back in marriage again with that spouse. Now, I've had the privilege of doing this. I had a couple come to to me years ago in our church who had divorced two years before. Neither of them got remarried. Both of them felt and believed and were convicted that God was telling them to marry one another again. I had the privilege of remarrying them. It was an awesome display of the power of the gospel. The innocent spouse should remain single Seeking reconciliation until it is beyond possible to be reconciled. Meaning that the guilty one who who divorced for unbiblical reason either dies or remarries. See, Christian marriage is a metaphor for Christ and the church and it must be held in the highest regard. But then Paul goes on and he brings in a scenario that wasn't happening in Jesus' day or his context... In a marriage of two unbelievers and the gospel is penetrating the Roman world and all of a sudden one of them gets saved. 
should the believer divorce because they are now unequally yoked, believer to unbeliever. And Paul says, if your unbelieving spouse is willing to stay married to you, then you must stay married. But if the unbeliever walks out on your marriage, meaning divorce, Paul instructs the believing spouse to let it be so. You are free to remarry only to a proven believer. Remarriage then is allowed in the scenario of desertion by an unbelieving spouse, but not with a believing spouse who initiates divorce other than the reason of adultery or clear abuse. Now this is hard. Likely, there are some of you that divorced and remarried outside of biblical reasons. And what do you do with that? If you have divorced and remarried outside of the bounds of Scripture, God will forgive you when you repent. He will wash you clean by His grace. Unlawful divorce and remarriage are terrible and forgivable sins. You are not consigned to the bench out of God's favor. But you must repent. And you must go forward in the marriage you are in and hold biblical ideals. And let the power of the gospel give you the ability to stay married. Marriage is to be held in the highest regard. All of us must heed biblical guidance. Single Christians, wisely, listen, if you're not married, please listen. Wisely marry only believers who have proven the sincerity of their faith. Husbands, steadfastly, let us love our wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, joyfully submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Don't let the world uglify that word. The word of God restores it to its beauty. You are not mute. You are not powerless. You have great strength that is lent to your husband as together in partnership you serve the Lord. That's what it means. Protect your marriages. Pursue the right steps when struggles occur, not allowing bitterness to take root. And may we all help each other make our marriages unbreakably glorious. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.